All right, now it's sermon time. Okay, we're good. Now, uh, well, good morning again. Like John said, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. Uh, and we are in a series called Eyes Up uh, that we are in Second Chronicles chapter 2. And before we jump in, uh, I want to share a quick story uh, from uh, about a year ago. I was on a lovely walk around uh, our neighborhood with my kiddos. And as we were heading back to the house, down our path that was kind of flanked by some trees, uh, coming up the path in the opposite direction was a lady walking her dog. Now, my kiddos, five and three at the time, are a little skittish when it comes to dogs. Uh, so as the lady and the dog approached and passed us, I was actually surprised to hear two loud thuds next to me. Uh, the first thud was my sweet daughter Maddie's head hitting a tree. Um, and the second thud was her hitting the ground. Uh, she, uh, she, what had happened, she had walked straight into the tree head first. Why? Because she wasn't looking where she was going. She attempted to walk forward while keeping her eyes locked on the passing dog. Instead of keeping her eyes up where they needed to be, they were down, distracted, by what she feared. And what was the result of her focusing on the wrong thing? She drifted off the path she should have been on and into disaster. And friends, I got no stones to throw at my beautiful little girl because I've done the same thing literally on walks, but even more detrimentally when walking through life. How often while on the path through this one life God has given me, have I taken my eyes off where they should have been up and on him and instead focused my life on the distractions and the dangers of this world, and in doing so, been pulled off course, often crashing and falling. Have you ever felt this way? Maybe like I have, you felt like Peter. Do you remember when Jesus called him uh, to step out of the boat and walk on the water with him? Uh, and as Peter gets out, he looks around at the wind and the waves and starts getting scared and begins sinking, desperately needing Jesus' rescue. And why was he sinking? because he took his eyes off Jesus. Today we are, like we said, concluding a two-week series called Eyes Up, and we're asking when the distractions and dangers of life come upon us, where do we look to keep our lives on track? And for help answering that question, we've been looking at the story of God's people in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So you can go in there and turn, uh, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. But by way of reminder, in that story, God's people find themselves with enemies walking up their path, <laughs> an unbeatable army at their doorstep threatening their lives and their calling as God's people. So their king, Jehoshaphat, even in the midst of his own fear, turns his eyes up and the eyes of the people up to God for wisdom and rescue. So the purpose of us taking a, a couple weeks in this series together is simple. We want to be the kind of family of faith that lives together with our eyes up on him. And in doing so together, we live out the calling he has put on us as his children to know him and to make him known to the world. So our story today begins uh, in verse 1 like this. I'll read it. You can follow along on the screen if you want. After this, the Moabites, I'm sorry, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came up and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. 
Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. As Pastor Ramil reminded us uh, last week, in this moment, Jehoshaphat does what he had a habit of doing all his life. He turned his eyes up. He looked to God in praying and fasting and calls his people to join him. And in those prayers, we hear him say these humble and beautiful words to God in verse 20. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So today we're going to continue in this story, not looking to Jehoshaphat's individual example like we did last week, but more looking at how God moved in the people as they sought him together and what that means for us today. Because we'll see that this story of God's people then shares similarities with God's people, us, here today. They faced an enemy, three unbeatable armies attacking them together. And our enemy, the three enemies we fight against, Satan, a God-denying world, and the sin inside us. Their enemies came with a threat. What was their threat? That their enemies would destroy them so that they wouldn't live out their calling as God's people, showing his glory to the world. And our enemy's threat is the same thing, that we wouldn't live out the promised calling God has put in our lives to show the world his glory. And their victory God's miraculous rescue, as we'll see, defeating their enemies, destroying their threats, and delivering them an unearned reward. And yes, spoiler alert, that's our victory too. God's defeat of our enemies through a miraculous rescue, delivering to us an unearned reward. So as we read the story of God's people then, we see God speaking to us Today, when we see him move in their lives, we see what he wants to do in our lives. And so we're going to ask today, what happens when God's people turn their eyes up to him together? So let's pick the story back up in verse 13. So again, you can follow as I read. It'll be on the screen. But we'll start by seeing that when God's people turn their eyes up together, God recalibrates our relationships. So again, follow along. I'm going to read just verse 13. It says, after Jehoshaphat has prayed, it says this, meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So the first thing we see right off the bat in our story is that when God's people turn their eyes up to him together, he recalibrates their relationships. So God's people were facing an enemy that threaten their lives and their calling as his people. So what does Jehoshaphat do? He brings them all together. He assembles every person and every family together to seek God as one. Why? Why did Jehoshaphat not just call the elders to come together and pray? Why not just get the heads of the households together to fast? Why was everyone called before the Lord to participate in seeking God's help and rescue because in God's family, everyone matters. Everyone sits under the attack of the enemy. Everyone is in need of spiritual rescue. And as we will see in the story, God calls the people to trust him together, to move out in faith together, to experience his power and glory and miraculous rescue together because 
We were meant to walk this life of faith with God together. From the very beginning, you might remember God saying, it's not good for man to be alone. Now it's true, we are individually responsible for our own lives. We are accountable for our own choices. And yes, some of us may be more social or extroverted or more of a people person than others, but that's not what I mean when I talk about community. I'm talking about since the beginning, God has been building for himself a family, a holy nation, a kingdom, a community. Sometimes he refers to it as his body with different members designed to need one another, to help one another, to support and encourage one another, and sometimes rebuke and correct one another. Why? So that we can be the holy family of faith together that the world needs in order to see God. Each one of us, if we have trusted God, has been given specific gifts and talents, not for ourselves, but to serve one another together. In fact, God has designed us so that we can't even fully know him or even fully know ourselves on our own. We were designed for community. I love how Proverbs 18.1 says it pretty bluntly. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So that word there, breaks out, literally means to like fight against, like brawl. So it's God saying, if you want to fight for your independence, fight for your freedom to be alone, fight for your isolation, you're fighting against wisdom. In other words, you're fighting to remain stupid. Why? Because you and I were never made to live this life alone. So whatever the enemy can do to keep us isolated, busy our schedules so we don't have time for church, or biblical community. Lean into excuses like it's too awkward or it's too uncomfortable or I just won't, don't want to do it or it's <clears throat> raining. <laughs> yeah, I did it. Okay. Avoiding biblical community is like playing into the enemy's hands, keeping us foolish with our eyes down on ourselves and derailing us from the path of faith God has called us to walk together. Lifting our eyes up to God especially when facing a threat or a danger, is one way God recalibrates our relationships from isolation back to a commitment to community. It's why here at CBC, one of our six core values is living in community. It's why we've recently hired James to help us grow in that area, in case you didn't realize that, James. <laughs> it's why, church family, hear this, it's why, because we love God and we love you, we will constantly be calling you into community, living life together. Because it's what we were made for and we cannot be who God called us to be without it. And time prevents us even from this verse to talk about the family ministry vision we see here. But I'm so grateful, like we mentioned before, for Pastor John and our family ministries team who desire, like this verse says, that families would center themselves around seeking God with their eyes up on him together. So we see, as we turn our eyes up to God together, he recalibrates our relationships. And in doing that, he actually then replaces our fears. 
So let's pick the story back up in verses 14 through 17. It says this, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of, of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. So after assembling all the people together, God speaks to them through Jehaziel where he says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Did you know that do not be afraid? It's the command God gives his people more than any other command in scripture. But wait, you're thinking, what? Like, what do you mean, do not be afraid? Do you not see this army? We are no match for them. They are stronger than us, more ruthless than us. They are coming against us with a force to destroy us that we are powerless Against, how can you have the audacity to tell us not to be afraid? And God says to them, yeah, you are powerless against your enemies, but they are powerless against me, and you're on my team. This is not your fight, but mine. It's not about your power, but mine. It's not about what you can't do, but what I will do for you. Do not be afraid. Just trust me, follow me, and believe that I will be your victory. Because, friends, we, we face many fears in this life, and we can often feel powerless against them. When's the last time you faced a fear where you simply said, I can't do it, it's too much, I'm not strong enough. But whenever we face our fears, it's easy and natural to fix our eyes on them, the diagnosis. The broken relationship, the mounting debt, the hurtful marriage, the wayward child, the dashed dream, the invading armies, for my daughter, the dog coming down the path. But we remember those broken things of this world are here because of our greater enemies, sin, Satan, and this world but they are not in control over us. They do not have the final say over us, and they will not last with us. Our God, almighty over us and all things, including the things we fear, fights for us, calls us to trust him, and will ultimately, one day, deliver the victory from every fear that we have. So even in our fears, when we turn our eyes up to God, together, he reminds us together of who is really in power over us and who holds our victory. And in that, we can replace fear with faith. I love the encouragement at the end 
of Jehaziel's words. Really, it's the ultimate reason our fears can be replaced by faith. Because even in our trials or our battles and our fears, what does God say? Tomorrow, go out against them. Face them. And the Lord will be with you. It's the same word that David spoke in Psalm 23, if you remember. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It's the same word of fear-melting faith that God spoke to his people through Isaiah in chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. The greatest thing that melts our fear is the truth, God with us. Jehoshaphat starts this story in fear, and God lovingly replaces that fear with faith. And that happens when God's people turn their eyes up to him together. And when fear is replaced by faith, other transformations in God's people begin to happen. God comes in and begins rearranging our lives. So let's pick the story back up again in verse 18. It says, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So again, to recap, the armies are threatening. Even in fear, Jehoshaphat calls the people, all families together to seek God as one. Relationships are recalibrated in the community together. And when God delivers to them a promise of miraculous victory, fears are replaced by faith. And that faith bursts forth and to rearrange lives. Remember, all they have is a word from God in this moment. They haven't like, seen God in person. They haven't seen their enemies defeated yet. All they have is a promise, and that was enough. Instantly, it says, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. A praise party broke out. A victory celebration erupted. And the battle hadn't even been fought yet. They were assembling the championship parade through the streets before the first preseason game was played. It rearranged their lives. The celebration before the battle. The victory before the fight. Anxious prayers turned into triumphant praise. What can make a life rearrange itself that way? Only the reality of God can. 
the promises of God can. Faith in God can. It rearranges everything about us. And our lives, in doing so, start to look foolish to a watching world. They look here and it's, it's foolish to worship before the battle. It's foolish to march to war and put the choir up front. And as we've learned recently, God says it's foolish in the world's eyes to believe that blessedness comes from self-denial and humility and not self-exalting. It's foolishness that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's foolishness that we love our enemies and pray for those who hurt us. Foolishness that holiness and integrity are more important than position and possessions. Foolishness that our worth is not found in what we do, how we look, what we know, who we know, what we've, been made, uh, what we've made, or what we own. But our worth is only in we belong to God. Foolishness that life is found by losing it. That surrender is the pathway to success. We could go on. But living with eyes turned up to God, trusting in the promises of God, even when our eyes can't see it and our hearts can't feel it, that's rearranging our lives. So I was reminded uh, recently of, of that need to hold on to God's promise, promises. So last week, I actually went home to Dallas to surprise my mom for her birthday. Yes, I am an amazing son. <laughs> but seriously, uh, so on Sunday morning last week, uh, I got up early and decided to head uh, out to get some studying done before attending the church that I actually grew up at. So as I made my way to the church, I remember that right across the street from the church was an office park where I used to work about 10 years ago. Uh, and so I actually pulled over and found the building I used to work at and parked out front. So you see, a few, wor a few years before I worked at that company, uh, Aaron and I had gotten married and we set out to plant a church. And about three years into it, some life circumstances kind of started piling up and crashing down. First, Aaron was diagnosed with some difficult health issues. Uh, and then shortly later, we were diagnosed with infertility, as we've shared before. Uh, and then during that, the company that I was working at at the time while we were planting did a round of layoffs and I got fired. Uh, or should I say let go? <laughs> uh, and then we decided it was best for our little church plant to migrate underneath another church in the area and combine with them. And in doing so, I stepped away from pastoral ministry, not knowing if I would get to do it again. So just a short time, we went from like passionate dreamers to the death of health plans, family plans, job plans, and ministry plans, all gone at the same time. And so with nowhere else to go, I took a job at this office building as a telemarketer sitting in a cubicle next to teenagers no offense, teenagers, making cold sales calls. This was not the five-year plan. In fact, it was a really dark time of wondering, God, where are you? Have you left us? Did, did we leave you? What in the world is happening? And it was a hard time, and pulling into that parking lot last weekend brought all those emotions like flooding back. But here's what also flooded in in the moment. 
So it's no coincidence that as I pulled into that parking lot uh, up to the building, as emotions and memories are cascading back into my heart, my iPhone uh, playing music shuffled randomly onto the song, Be Thou My Vision. And if you're not familiar with that song, it's a hymn asking God to make us his, uh, make him our singular vision. Above all fears and treasures and trappings of this earth, that God would be our vision above all. And as it played, I thought back on these past 10 years from the cubicle until now, on God's faithfulness and grace to our family. Now, we still have hardships for sure, but over the last 10 years, God has not left us, not for a moment. He was and is working in us the whole time, humbling us and growing and maturing, refining us to grow us deeper in our faith and trust in him. And along that time, he provided. He provided health relief. He provided us with a beautiful family. He took care of our provisions and needs and even brought opportunities to serve him in ministry in even more effective ways than if we wouldn't have gone through the hardships. So with Be Thou My Vision on repeat, the flood of God's faithfulness filling my heart, I had this thought. I wish, I was like, I wish I could had a time machine that I could hop back into that building 10 years ago and take all the realities of God's faithfulness and all the experiences of his grace and mercy that we'd seen over the last decade and press them down into like cubicle Mike's heart and brain and give him the assurance that God was still with him God was at work and that everything was going to be okay. Helping him live in that moment in the assurances of the goodness that the future held. And friends, isn't that simply what walking by faith is for all of us? Living in our present moment in the certainty of God's future goodness for us? Isn't that what we're called to be as God's people? What would it look like to the world around us if we started living that way and showing the reality and greatness of God? It's what God's people are doing here in 2 Chronicles 20, living presently in the reality of their future victory. And friends, I think it's part of the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate victory over our enemies. Jesus conquered Satan conquered sin and the world by the cross. And the proof, stepping out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, alive again. And when the risen Jesus met people, I felt like, I feel like part of what it was like, Jesus was saying, friends, this, this is what awaits you. This is what's coming for you. I am the first fruits of a new and perfect and sin-free, glorious world I've just battled for and won for you. Grab a hold of my resurrection. Push it down into your hearts and minds. Believe that this reality is waiting for you, your future resurrection in glory. Let my resurrection and the promise it holds for your future change everything about how you live this moment. What if we live that way? Living now, sure of the victory that's coming. That would change everything. It would rearrange every aspect of our lives. It would lead us to be a people who revel in God's victory. Let's pick the story back up in verse 22. And when they began to sing 
and praise. The Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, They found among them in great numbers, goods, clothing, and precious things when they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were there, uh, they were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. I love this. Did you catch at the beginning of this part in verse 22? When does it say God defeated their enemies? When did he move in victory? And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon. When their praise went up, the rescue came down. And to be honest, I don't really know what to do with all that. I just think it's cool. I just think it's awesome. But it reminds me of Psalm 22. When speaking of God, we say, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel enthroned on the praises of your people, are you God? So the people move forward in faith. Their lives rearranged because they believed in the victory. And when God delivered, they reveled in it. Joyful praise, reaping rewards and proclaiming the greatness of their mighty and gracious God. But friends, they didn't even have the victory that we have today. Our victory is not just for an army, for a moment, for a reward of a few trinkets. We have the victory, our salvation forevermore. Because of Jesus' sinless life, death in our place for sin on the cross, and triumphant resurrection, he has defeated sin, its condemning power over us, defeated and disarmed Satan, and has defeated and undone the curse of this sin-soaked world. Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. Jesus' victory over sin is our victory. And our unearned reward of Jesus' battle and victory for us, our spoils, it's not just forgiveness, although it's good. It's not just paradise and glory and new bodies and all that stuff. That's great. That's good. Our spoil, our great reward is Jesus being with him the great lover of our souls, the great fighter of our battle, the great victor of our salvation, our Lord, God, Savior, King, and friend, our reward for Jesus' victory over sin is him. We get him. And we revel in that victory. We abide in Jesus. We exalt him in and through us 
now and forever, which leads us to the last and final thing. What's the point of this story? God is intentional in everything he does. So why did God put his people through all of these trials? Well, I would argue the same point for what he was doing in them is the same point for what he's doing in us. And let's read verse 29 as we see the answer to why did God do this? And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. The fear of God came on all the kingdoms. Why did God do all of this? For the glory of his name. The threat on God's people was that their enemies would come and attack and destroy them and actually prevent them from being the very thing God called them to do. A people showing the world the greatness of God. That was threatened to be taken away. But in the end, that's exactly what God accomplished because of the enemies. Because of his enemies, God showed the world how great he is. The greatness of his glory, how greatly he had rescued his people. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms, reverberating, echoing, shouting out the glory of God. And friends, that's the same for us. Why do we exist? To show the world the greatness and glory of God because of his great rescue of us from our enemies, sin, Satan, and the world. We are a people reverberating God's glory in us and out to the watching world, proclaiming the gospel we believe, the gospel that changes everything about us, the great battle Jesus fought and won for us that turns our eyes up to God together, recalibrating our relationships, replacing our fears, rearranging our lives as we revel in his victory for us to the reverberation of his glory in us together. So as we close, remind you what I said at the beginning, the purpose for this series, this short two weeks, is that we want to be the kind of family of faith that lives together with our eyes up on him. And to see God move powerfully among us to show the world the greatness of who he is. So a natural question at this moment is, okay, now what? Like, where do we go from here? Uh, well, this is a lifelong pursuit together. It's a commitment to the long haul with God and each other. But in the short term, we want to invite you as a church family to seek God with us, to turn our eyes up to God together in two ways. The first is, sorry, we have a little font issue. That's right. <laughs> the first is through praying together, specifically through a, a spe special devotional that the staff is putting together this week, starting tomorrow. An email each day, tomorrow through Friday, that will lead us together in praying collectively for God to move in our church family, to turn our eyes up together, to live for his glory in all that we do. So if you're already on our CBC email list, you'll receive the devotional in your inbox. But if you aren't sure if you're on that list or you know you're not, you can either scan this QR code, take a picture of it, or just go to chantillybible.org devotional to sign up. So we invite you to pray with us this week. And secondly, just like in our story today, we want to seek God together through fasting, specifically inviting everyone to join us in an all-church fast on this Friday, May 5th. So if you were with us a few months ago, one of our former pastors and elders, uh, B.J. Walbert, preached a great sermon on fasting. We'll share that link in the devotional. 
or you can just go find it online. But fasting is when we abstain from food for a short time so that in our physical hunger, we turn our hearts and eyes to God, asking that he would satisfy our spiritual hunger for more of him in all of our lives. So in fasting, we are confessing that we need God even more than we need food and that our souls are hungry for him. So we're going to invite everyone this Friday to fast with us. Now, it could be just fasting for one meal. It could be fasting all day. It doesn't matter. No one's going to ask you. But we will conclude that fasting with a special worship service this Friday night at 630. We'll have stillness, some unhurried prayer, some songs, and even take communion together. So a day of fasting concluded by a prayer and song service here at 630. Even if you don't fast, you can come to the prayer service at 6.30. So friends, living this redeemed, rescued life that God has called us to is not something that we can do on our own. But it is absolutely something God can do and wants to do in his people together. What he asks from us, just like in this story, is simply this, to turn to him in faith, to put our eyes up on him together, and live today in the victory that Jesus has already won for us. So let's pray together. Father, we confess that this story is true. Not just the second chronicle story, but the story of your rescue of us through Jesus, taking our cross, rising again, and showing us the first fruits of the hope that we have. Lord, I pray for our church body. Our enemy wants us to isolate our enemy wants us to try to do a solo Christianity, and it just doesn't exist. It doesn't work. So I pray for my friends here, that not out of guilt or condemnation or shame, but out of a desire and a joy for the glory of your name, you would move in us to put our eyes up together, to commit to living this life of faith together with one another. And in doing so, would you use CBC to show the world your glory through how we live our lives of faith together. Lord, as we sing to you right now, Accept the praise that comes up as we know your rescue comes down. And it's in the name of our risen King Jesus we pray these things. Amen.